0: They were saying, like, we cannot solve problems with 10 classes, and now you want to solve uh, a problem with 10,000 classes. This is stupid. Um, because they didn't realize, no one did at the time, the importance of scale. For them, scale was almost a bad thing. And for an SVM that scales cubically with a number of data points, scale is a bad thing. And until you can solve the very simple problem with small amounts of data, you're not going to be able to solve the big thing. And turns out neural networks do not be in this way.
1: Hey there, I'm your host, Ken Jun. And we are Generally Intelligent, an independent research lab developing AI agents that mirror the fundamentals of human-like intelligence and that can learn to safely solve problems in the real world. On our podcast, we interview researchers about their behind-the-scenes ideas, opinions, and intuitions that are hard to share in papers and talks. We hope you learn as much as we have in our quest to understand and build the mind. We always start with Tell us a story of how you develop your initial research interests and how they evolved over time. Like, how did you get here?
0: I always had quite a bit of interest in math since I was growing up. My dad used to give my brother and I uh, all these little problems. Most of the time, I didn't get them. Little things like this always sparked a bit of curiosity on math and, in general, problem solving and... Thanks to this and very nice people I had around me in high school, I was able to see that math was much more than the stuff that we were told in find the root of this polynomial. And I just liked it. But for a while, I thought that it was kind of going to be a a pretty useless thing. And I wanted to avoid myself to something more practical. So I thought of, oh, maybe I want to study computer science and stuff. Later on, I guess in high school, when I was 16 or 17 or so, I got very interested in drugs and how they Mm -hmm. affect the chemistry of the brain and just in general consciousness and all of these Mm -hmm. things. So I set on to study biology and computer science. And then I realized that I couldn't study both computer science and biology because in my university in Argentina, the first class of biology was 17 hours a week. And I was basically okay. Maybe not. Maybe I'll do like a few classes and stuff and do more computer science. This guy, Carlos Duv, gave a one-month class on reinforcement learning in college in Argentina. He's from Argentina. This was 2012. But around that time, uh, yeah, ImageNet happened and all of this. And I met a bunch of people in my university that were kind of like curious about it. I didn't know much about anything. It was my first year in college, but he was kind enough to let me skip all the prerequisites. And I was like, this is awesome. I want to do more of this. I guess that was the beginning. Then from these people that I met in university, I learned that Coursera was a thing. And I started learning about machine learning from then because there were no classes from this Mm -hmm. random thing that happened in my Mm -hmm. university. But also at the time, I did this little course on quantum mechanics. And I was like, wow, maybe math is not as useless as I thought. (laughs) So then I kind of ended up doing both pure math and computer science Mm -hmm. in college. And that's the gist of it. But I still wanted to keep working in machine learning because I thought it was so good.
1: How
0: did you get into research? Very early on, I realized that I was interested in doing research. I didn't know exactly why at the time. When I was in high school, I was doing mass Olympiads and stuff. So there was a lot of problem solving involved, and research seemed kind of like that at the real world. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it turned out to be very different than just like solving the two type problems. But basically, it was kind of natural as well in the sense that at the time, uh, let's say 2013, maybe when I was already more seriously involved in machine learning. If you wanted to get a job doing machine learning, you had to have a PhD. There was no way around it. If you wanted to work in Google and do machine learning, there was Brain, which was a very, very small team back then. You needed to have a PhD if you wanted to work with them. So it was like, okay, I wanted to do a PhD just to get a job doing machine learning.
1: So how did you choose what to work on, who to work with,
0: and what your interests were? It was a sequence of a lot of lucky things. Like, I love this class on reinforcement learning, especially the feeling of working with agents and doing games and things. Like, when I was a kid, I loved video games, especially strategy games or role-playing games like World of Warcraft and things like this. I don't enjoy, like, building big things. I don't think I would enjoy building a bridge more than the technical challenges of building a bridge, let's say. I think I enjoy always the problem-solving part more than the building that at scale and at the real world, which is a whole discipline in itself. And I, I think without the people that do this, our world would crash in two seconds. It's arguably more important than research in many, many ways.
1: Spoken like a true mathematician. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's just the thing that always got me the kick was the problem solving part of it. And yeah, I guess that was a big part. But anyway, basically, to answer the question of how I ended up choosing topics and stuff, a few of them was kind of by sheer luck. The first thing I did research-wise, aside from this little class project was, so I did an internship in Google in 2015, when I was finishing college around then. I landed in a super cool team. Again, incredibly lucky to work with these people. It was a team in YouTube that was a team that was in charge of video compression in YouTube. And in general, the quality of videos for YouTube. And it was cute because I didn't realize that the entire quality of YouTube videos was handled by 20 people. but The project itself was basically how can we use machine learning to reduce the load on the video compressor? Because essentially the way that this worked was you don't say how much you want a video to weigh. Like you cannot say, oh, I want this very specific bitrate. You can just say compress by this number. That means basically nothing. Or that it's very hard to interpret. So basically the way that YouTube works is they compress it once. They see how much they messed up and then they compress a second time with a little adjustment. But most of the time it's way off and like it's just very suboptimal. So and what they wanted to do was a very simple thing, which was train a predictor to say from this number, like the compression factor, what the output bit rate is going to be. And the next thing is that, A, you have infinite data for this because you have all the videos in YouTube and you yourself create data points by compressing them. It's just mm-hmm. compressing them is an extremely slow, extremely compute expensive way to do this. To the point where video compression was spending more compute than all of Google search at the time. Wow. And we wrote a paper on this. We saved 40% of the compression budget. It was great. And I was very lucky to work with these people in the sense that none of them were machine learning people. None of them knew much about machine learning, but they were all electrical engineers with PhDs that knew everything there is to know about video compression and they knew everything there is to know about doing research. So they were incredibly like talented people. Even if. I knew more about machine learning. They knew more about everything else in life and we could communicate very well. And also they taught me how to do research well a little bit more. And it was just a great environment for learning. And I was like, I want to keep doing this.
1: This is in 2016?
0: 2015. January 2015, yeah. Got it. Um, what, are,
2: what are things you learned from them about how to do research well?
0: How to evaluate things, I would say, like, finding the real variable that you care about, finding how to successfully scale up your experiments. We started with five videos that were, but five videos as well, like, five canonical videos, and then we moved on to YouTube videos, but at certain scales, just how to incrementally look at things, how to look at the data, just what things to plot, what things to... It's kind of like the little pipeline that becomes a daily part of your routine a well, lot of times when you're doing research. The nice thing about the, this in here is that At the end of the day, we have a very concrete measure of how much compute you're using for this thing. Mm -hmm. And like research, a lot of times, non-applied research, let's say, it was impossible to fool yourself. The real number was there. Whether you're losing money or making money was very easy to see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was great. I knew that I wanted to kind of stay reasonably grounded as well after this. because It was great. This at least gave me a stronger incentive of what kind of environment I wanted to be in, in the near future. The last chain in the story basically is I. During that time, I started reading. I was reading that ridiculous amount of papers, and I was becoming very interested in things. And when I was in Google doing this internship, Joshua Benjo came to give a talk at some point on three different things. It was a very cool talk. He was uh, introducing three different research papers from his lab. The first one was attention, so I, it was this paper by joined in learning to align and translate, where was the first paper when attention appeared uh, with Dima and Cho and all those people, I did not understand any of this. But the second thing that he talked about was this optimization problem where they basically said, look, neural networks are incredibly non-convex and stuff, but they have these properties that random functions have, which is that most uh, local optima tend to be like of similar value as the global optima. And you can... However, the reason why like, second-order methods like Newton's method and stuff fail is because of saddle points and things like this. And I got super interested in this, and I started reading more about this topic, and I came up with a little idea of how to adapt some second-order methods to work well with this, and methods that were particularly fast with neural networks, like conjugate gradient style. And once I had like this idea, I wrote a one-and-a-half-page LaTeX document, and I sent it to Joshua Yandofan, who was the first author of this paper. Yandofan replied uh, right away, like, hey, this is interesting, blah, blah, blah. And we said uh, it would be cool to collaborate on this. Joshua never replied. And then I, I, like three months later or so, I was writing like some code for this. And Joshua, out of the blue, sends me an email saying like, hey, do you want to come to Montreal for an internship? So I went on to Montreal for a couple of months. And then that was when I was, I really like fell in love with deep learning and just in general, research, and I was like, I want to do this for the near future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And so this is you worked on the adversarially learned inference and the Unitary Evolution paper.
0: Yeah. That was when that happened. It was very funny because I was working on this optimization thing. And basically what happened was that the person that was sitting next to me, Marsha, a very good friend of my, uh, mine, he was working on some variational encoder stuff and just because the lab is very open or was, at, the, at least at the time now, the chin is is much, 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 much bigger. But at the time, it was very open. Everyone was talking about stuff, and someone had an idea of how to, for reducing this punishing and exploding gradients problem. And I was like, no, this is never going to work. Like, I can prove mathematically that this is never going to work. And just because gradients are still going to explode. Basically, it was a misconception of what an eigenvalue is. It was a cute way to show that that wasn't going to work, and the follow-up was like, oh, there's this thing that might work, which was this unitary matrix idea. And uh, Amar and I, were, uh, were who came up with this, were like, look, there's this deadline to for ITL in six weeks, and the conference is in Puerto Rico. <laughs> Do you want to, like, try to come up with a paper so we can go to Puerto Rico <laughs> in six weeks? <laughs> I was like, yeah. So we did it. <laughs> and uh, the paper got rejected, but then it got accepted into ICMN, but at least it got into a workshop so we could go to Puerto Rico in there. That's <laughs> uh, really yeah, funny. It, that's when that happened. But uh, and at the time, the other thing that happened, which magically shaped my career, was that... So, uh, at the time, I was also speaking to people in Facebook AI, and I arranged to do an internship in there and stuff, but basically, when I was in Montreal, still uh, the DC gun paper came by, where they, like at the time when, you know, people were trying to semi-successfully generate plausible MNIST pictures, they could get these pictures of bedrooms and faces with these really cool interpolations and stuff That's that showed right. that they weren't that like... Pressured. Yeah, Alec Radford, exactly. Alec Radford, Luca, and Sumit Chintala. And Sumit was going to be the person that I would be working with in Facebook. So it was kind of, a, at that time, I started getting interested in guns and stuff. And just because it, it was it was kind of magical, you know, this thing that no one understood that worked extremely well, but they were super unstable. And when I was in Facebook, we were working on StarCraft, funny enough, StarCraft 1, and none of that worked, like, at all. It wasn't for wasted months, but was four months of trying stuff that was no chance in hell that it was going to work in retrospect. Mm. None of us knew very much about the uh, RL like, or deep reinforcement learning, let's say, and about how hard it is to just make a reward function go up. Also, the code was, I mean, it was this very complicated machine. Uh, but anyhow, basically none of that worked. But I had Leon Botu at one desk away from me, and we were talking about guns and why they might be working all the time. And Sumit was right next to us and Sumit was also in this Gun paper and he knew exactly how experiments would go and stuff. So that's how this WGAN paper came to be essentially because it was Leon and I coming up with equations on how to explain how things might be working. And it was so cool that basically Sumit knew this topic so, so well that we would come up with experiments. And we would tell them to Sumit, Sumit would run it in their head, in his head. He never had to call the line. And he would say exactly what the output would be. Uh, wow. Because he had so much experience and so much intuition, and so much knowledge about this, that he knew what the output of things would be. And I think in the end, we ran three experiments for that paper, which were the ones that appeared in the paper. Yeah, it was just a very lucky connection of Leon, who's an amazing advisor and also an amazing mathematician. Sumir, who knew everything about this and that there was to know about this at the time, and an amazing like experimentalist. And me, who knew enough math to come up with this idea and uh, machine learning, I guess. But it was just a very fruitful thing. And that was kind of it for this part of the story. I guess. And then I started going into causality and things like this because I was very annoyed at the fact that neural networks didn't really work that well when deployed out of distribution. Uh-huh. Uh.
1: It's interesting.
0: He published his paper on Watson's thinking and then yeah. So no I decided to not do research for six months after that, just because I was on the verge of burning out. First. And uh, second, I felt like I knew quite a bit about the gun problem that I was interested in, and I was like, okay, maybe it's, it's time for a switch. And I, at that time... I, th- th- I just felt like reading more. Like I go through a lot of phases where I do a lot of research or I do a lot of reading and it's very hard for me to intertwine both of them. So in Mm. general, it's tricky, especially when you would like really want to like take things in that you're reading. And I read a lot of things like math books or just in general, like things that take a long time. And I don't have the discipline to like read uh, one chapter a day of something or something like that when I'm doing research at the time and having all these meetings and stuff. So after the gun paper came by, I went to Montreal for two weeks because since I was very close, I used to go to Montreal fairly often, just to talk to people and see what everyone was working on. Uh, it's a very good way to know what the, the deep learning community was interested in at the time. That's where I met Ishan who came up with this improved the time gun idea. And I just uh, guided them a bit through it, but that was all Ishan, who is the, which is the way that people use guns in practice. But at the time I knew that Leon was very excited about causality and... Just in general, I was very interested in out of distribution generalization. And we all had this vague intuition that if you know that X causes Y, then you change the distribution of X and you know what's going to happen. Like if I know that altitude affects temperature and I know the formula, despite me testing this formula on like a couple of different hundreds of meters of difference, I know what the temperature is going to be in Mount Everest. So there was this vague idea that if you know the cause of something, then you can predict the consequence.
3: Which is mm.
0: a very intuitive thing, right? Like if you know the causes of something and you know the behavior, then you would be able to tell what's going to happen. Uh, mm. So I started reading a lot about causality around that time. And I went to do an internship in Paris with David Lopez-Faz, who now is one of my best friends, and lives 15 blocks away from me.
1: The idea basically that for out-of-distribution generalization, mm-hmm. if you can understand what causes the differences between the two distributions, then you can generalize better.
0: At that so, time... Yeah, at that time, uh, this wasn't really a thing. At the time, uh, there was one paper that hinted uh, towards this, and it was our main basis of like, it, it's a paper that really inspired us in many ways, and that did all of the technical work that was important to do before us, which was this invariant causal prediction paper. And this is a paper, keep in mind, from the Royal Academy of Statistics. So it's a paper where all the variables are Gaussian, uh, all the models are linear, There's no approximation. Everything is about estimation. There's no gradient descent. There's no nothing. It's all about hypothesis testing and Gaussian. But still, it had this idea that first, it had to really, the key ideas that we picked up uh, from. It had the key idea that you don't need uh, to do interventions necessarily yourself. You can just have a bunch of different data sets that come from interventions that you don't know. I don't need to have the ability to intervene on each variable. I just need to have them on pools of data that come from different interventions. And this was basically... A setting that people could relate to in practice, like I have data sets from 10 different cities or 10 different hospitals. And they had uh, this gist of it that in these linear tasks, if you know the cause about something, then you're going to be able to predict when you change the environment. So basically when you change the distribution. Uh, So all of them was theirs. But this is a paper that, and again, this is a bit of luck in the sense that I did not know about this paper. Like this Mm -hmm. paper, but David is an expert in causality. He did his entire PhD on it, so he knew these people very well, and he basically... The name of the paper again? Yeah, we call it invariant causal prediction, but the actual Mm -hmm. paper has a slightly different name. Let me tell you a question. Also, invariant
3: prediction?
0: Yes, that one. It's a very beautiful paper, but you'll see there's no gray in the sand, there's no... It's all all about uh, hypothesis testing. Hmm. And to be honest, IRM in the end, uh, and, and I, I, we never tried to hide this, it's nothing but uh, applying this with neural networks again, descent and making it differentiable and non-linear because hmm. everything that they do is, and there was one very key observation, which is that in order to find the causes, they look at invariances between residuals. So residuals are basically, if I have two variables X and Y. Then I train a regression from X to Y and the residual is, and let's call this regression beta. The residual is Y minus B, beta X. So the, the error, the, the error with that, they're errors. It can be positive on error. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, okay, let's look at, subs, at uh, subsets of variables of the data that have the same distribution for the residuals. And also note that they were doing variable selection. So all of this was two to the end in complexity, mm-hmm. like time complexity. And basically what we did is say, okay, residuals A in classification don't make any sense. They only make sense for regression, but you can do essentially the same thing, but instead of looking at the residuals, by looking at the regressions or by looking at the optimal classifier on top of your axis. And this is something that makes sense even with non-linear even with uh, neural networks and stuff. And a big part of the paper was kind of, okay, how can we transform this to the deep learning SGD blah, blah, blah world? Mm. Mm. that was basically what we did, and nonetheless that brought many 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 different challenges because I mean it was much harder than we expected in many ways and also we came up with this idea a year after we started working on this project, like there were i think ten or twenty things that made no sense that we tried, and then we realized very late on that made no sense. so this paper was not the first thing that we looked at <laughs> uh, yeah well, what? Uh, yeah I mean, we, we so, I mean, one of the th- main things that we looked at for, like, six months was uh, domain adaptation and, in general, conditional domain adaptation as well, like matching distributions of features
2: mm.
0: uh, until we came up with examples of tasks where this, like, really, really, really fails. And uh, tasks that are important as well, like, like, related to reinforcement learning or things like, imagine, for example, that I have a room where the color of the wall changes a lot. And all that I need to solve the task is where I am, let's say. So these are your features that are causes of the reward or, I mean, there's many ways that you can formalize this, but one of them is that if you've these features for every different color of the wall, the optimal policy on top will be the same. So the you can do the IRM idea that we had at a policy level and it will be. What I'm saying is that the only important information is your location. If you want to get out of a maze, for example. Mm-hmm. So basically, regardless of the color of the room, if you have your position, you can determine what the optimal policy is. Uh, Mm -hmm. However, the distribution of the location can change from time to time just because I move around. So this is a problem where if you try to do domain adaptation, you will crash. There's no features that are stable through time, for example. Uh, Mm -hmm. So if I have uh, 10 different datasets of 10 different people trying to solve this task, there is a representation that's invariant in the IRM sense of like, the optimal policy or the optimal classified on top uh, being the same for different times, different episodes, whatever. But the distribution of locations is not the same across environment. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, we came out with 20 different counter examples of where domain adaptation would fail. And we were like, okay, this is not going to work. Mm-hmm. And this is how we, this and then reading ICP and then rereading it and then rereading it and then rereading it. We were like, okay, it's not that we want uh, P of h, like the distribution where h is the features, it's not that we want that to be the same across data sets, we want p of y given h to be the same across data okay. mm-hmm. We want that, if you know the features, you can predict the label, regardless of everything else. This is the, the thing that you care for prediction, right? And you care about the fact that the correlation between uh, your features and the target does not change when the context changes. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And IRM was basically this and like really sealing up the relationships between this causality. And there were two main questions that we had to answer. One is, how do you optimize this? How do you transform this into a loss that is not impossible to optimize? And that was a mm-hmm. huge thing because in the linear cases, it tends to be an NP-hard problem. Because you're finding intersections of ellipses and stuff, and it's very tricky. Turns out that when you throw a neural network, things get much easier because of reasons that we've yet to understand. But it's the same phenomenon that people have observed of like, you over-parameterize things, uh, throw SGD, optimization gets easier. So the optimization side of things was very, very interesting. And some people cared about it in the sense that we were claiming that at least for the (coughs) linear case and all of these things, this made sense and people could use it in practice. And people did in the end. I know that NASA is using it for some things related to... um, finding uh, markers for cancer in space, like just because apparently uh, they're very afraid of astronauts that are living in, in space stations for a very long time getting cancer because they're getting radiation all the time. So I know that they're using IRM for things like this. I hope they don't blame me if suddenly astronauts have cancer interviews. I know that they would be interested for this kind of thing. And so we needed to make sure that what we were saying wasn't that much nonsense. A bit of nonsense <clears> is okay, especially when you're talking about neural networks. you know. But in the linear case, at least we had to describe what the picture was. And the other part of it was uh, to say that, okay, if I have enough data sets, will you actually arrive to the right solution? This was uh, a theorem that we proved saying that it's very pessimistic, Kano, uh, as we were chatting before, uh, of like, if you have uh, D variables, you need uh, D data sets to solve this task, but at least we could show that the algorithm is consistent with a non-infinite number of data sets. And with very mild assumptions on the data sets, like they don't need to be sampled from a meta distribution or anything like this. I guess this is a very big picture of. <laughs>
1: overview. Something that you've been clearly trying to understand is out of distribution generalization. This is a huge problem. With what do you think holds the field
0: back now at this point, 2021? Second question I would say better benchmarks. I think many people know about this. I've heard of practical problems where this happens, especially in the medical domain. And there's papers that show this that are entirely about showing this problem in the medical domain that have private data sets, for example. So it's impossible for me to grab them. And I know David Lopez-Paz and Ishan, like, basically did an entire massive benchmark survey of all of these things. And they basically said, well, A, the best thing that works is empirical risk minimization. So Mm -hmm. just train on your pool data together, all of these fancy things, none of them really work. And a lot of it has to do with how you pick your hyperparameters and things like this. Like, I think in general... uh, there are two or three good benchmarks and I'm going to clarify what I mean by that. I think good in the sense that they show very clearly that just training on your full data fails because of spurious correlations. They really show this behavior. One of them is predicting hair color in CelebA. Just because there are so few male blondes in CelebA that the model automatically classifies it basically has extremely poor accuracy in male blondes when predicting hair color. So it's a very niche data set in the sense that you're predicting hair color and stuff, but at least the problem is real. You throw a comment and it fades. So nah, there's two or three benchmarks. this. They're, they're all present in this wild meta benchmark that people from Stanford have created. But they're all super simplistic problems in the sense that predicting hair color is something that you can do with pixel intensities alone. In fact, if you pre-train on ImageNet, I will still have to do the experiment of like no image and nothing, just doing a linear model at pixel level. But if you play chain on ImageNet, you can do a linear model on top and it gets perfect accuracy applying any of these fancy things. Basically, what I want to say is we need harder tasks that people care about in the real world. Because even if I destroy these benchmarks with something simple and like something that makes sense, like no one will care about it. Just because- So like it's a toy problem, Who cares? Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, you can predict hair color. Great. Good for you, you know? One of the other things why we were so lucky in the gun, in the Passerstein gun paper was that we were solving a problem that everyone cared about at the time, like stabilizing guns. We didn't need to motivate anything. We just needed to motivate why our solution made sense and all of that, but we did not need to motivate the problem at all. This problem was widespread in all of the community. And now everyone is trying to solve robustness without having a benchmark that shows that robustness is a problem. Most of the benchmarks that you have are like super synthetic things, like for example, like this texture versus shape experiments. Which I think they're good scientific experiments to probe what neural networks are doing, but they're not good benchmarks. Like you cannot measure performance on these super synthetic things. I don't know if you saw this tweet from someone showing that a Tesla was classifying the moon as a yellow light uh, and it was stopping down the. <laughs> and, yeah, it was awesome. We need more of this. We need no, that at, at scale because these problems exist. And there's many, many anecdotal reports of these problems. And anecdotal, but on deployed systems, things that mm. really daily affect people. And there was this crash from an assert driving car as well sometime before that thought that a split in like an exit in a highway was creating a new lane and just drove in the middle of the, oh the, of the exit and someone died, I think. Yeah, so there's been car crashes already because of faulty self-driving car systems, which is not to say that they may be saving lives in the sense that like people crash all the time as well, but these things exist. I would just like to have benchmarks, things where I can test algorithms on this. I think this is the main... Like there's a gap between the thing that people want to solve in industry and the thing that we have to test. And that's Mm -hmm. unacceptable if you want to do research at scale. And it's really sad because everyone is full of ideas and full of motivation. And I think it's one of these particular moments in history where people that 30 years ago would have become physicists or would have become aerospace engineers or everything, all of them want to work on machine learning now. And I think it's great. (laughs) I remember for when I was doing the visit weekend at the admitted PhD students in Jan's lab, there were so many people that had like all these letters of recommendations from Nobel prizes, you know, and they were like, one. Wow. Wow. So many talented people are in the field right now. And it almost seems like a waste, a lot of it. Yeah, we're really, like cannot... wasting
1: the city problems.
0: Yeah. When you cannot test their ideas because their motivation is not toy problems. They want to solve real problems. There's a gap between what we can test and what we, we, we want to solve.
1: Do you have any thoughts on how you would design a good benchmark?
0: I would hire a lot of people to think about this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So the main thing is if this was my full-time job, which could be, I'm just lazy. If this was my full-time job, what I would do is I would go to startups that are working on agriculture, that are working on all of these real problems. And I would say, hey, have you encountered a problem of a distribution generalization? In my experience, because I tend to talk to startups often, 50% of them say yes. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe 2% of them would be able to give up their data just because yeah. they're companies. And even a smaller fraction would be able to spend the time to actually create a curated data set for it. But if you find that one that actually that satisfies all of this continuum, I think it could be a huge advancement. So I think the I would go and talk to startups. i like people that are working on products. That is the first step that I would take yeah. because these are the, the people whose problems you want to solve. It's not that you want to solve the ad problems. You want to solve real problems. And the bench effects come as a model for that. And then toy problems come as a model for that at a smaller scale. But there mm-hmm. is.
1: So Tesla has this approach to building self driving cars where basically they have all of this data internally. And obviously, auto distribution generalization is one of the biggest problems because. Yeah self-driving cars, the problem is death by a thousand cuts. There are so many edge cases all the time.
0: Exactly. And Um, this is exactly what we want to solve.
1: Right. It is. However, people there feel like it is difficult to just continue building existing systems and get to something with really good out of distribution generalization. There are so many different types of edge cases and so many different situations. And I'm curious if you, like, you were going to say something.
0: Yeah. I was going to say that, that that's exactly the thing, you know, like. Of course they're not going to be able to solve this problem because I think the research is not there yet. It's almost like they're looking for a method to solve their problems. And of course there's no method that's going to be designed when we don't have a benchmark that resembles their problem.
1: They have a research team
0: that's working on it. Right. But they have a research team, but it's very different to have a research team and to have the full research community working on something. Mm, that's like, right. Yeah, the yeah. moment where computer vision exploded was when ImageNet was created. Like, yeah. it wasn't because of neural networks, it wasn't because, like, all of, obviously, Kintan and Alex Krizhensky, all of these people had a huge impact, but they only had this impact because ImageNet was there. Otherwise, the schmitt Hoover would have done it, you know?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense.
0: So I sure. think the person that we should be thanking in here, and I'm not the only one saying this, is Olga Rusakovsky, who made the ImageNet dataset, you know? And mm-hmm. until that happens, we're going to have a bunch of ideas that don't really work because we don't have a benchmark to test them on something that they see like, one of the things that we're writing now, actually, is a paper saying that a lot of the fancy methods for out-of-distribution generalization that people are using will only work in very simple problems, like hair color prediction or things like this. They will crash once you have a more complex problem. <clears throat> uh, and this is to be defined in very particular ways, but I hope in ways that makes sense that basically I think we're coming up to the conclusion that the alternatives that people have for out-of-distribution generalization right now will only work if also throwing away about like 99% of your data will work. What I'm saying is for one, and and this is not something that I observed, this was Tagawa from Stanford that said this before, but in a lot of these out-of-distribution problems, the best alternative is to throw away most of your majority data points. So imagine you have like each case's data set and the rest of your data. If you throw away most of your majority data so that edge cases are no longer edge cases, this works as well as anything else. And this that's works. Sort of news- yeah. And this works much better than just upsampling those examples and stuff for many reasons. Wow. But this is why. Wow. Why? Yeah. Why does it work it better is- than upsampling?
1: Okay. It's a very that's
0: good question. It's a very, very good question. But basically, before I answer that, I just want to say that this is obviously something that's not going to work in, in anything that where you need massive amounts of data, right? If all you have is like 10 edge cases and you throw away a million data points so that you have now 10 edge cases and 10 non-edge cases, you're only going to be stuck to solving problems with the can be solved with data points. End of parentheses okay. The reason why this works and uh, up your other data points does not can be explained when you look at it in the linear case, which is quite interesting.
1: Sampling doesn't. Yeah.
0: You can think about it in a linear problem. Yeah. Um, this is really the same behavior that we observe also for neural networks and So one characteristic neural networks have is that in general, they're over You can very easily find a solution that has 100% accuracy in your training data. Training data. In a linear problem, when you do logistic regression and you can get a 100% accuracy, there's a phenomenon which is called implicit regularization. That basically, it means that SGD picks a particular solution among all of them that have... A, 100% training accuracy, and in particular, it picks the one with a maximum margin. So in this setup, logistic regression becomes uh, essentially training an SVM. And the interesting thing is that if you throw away... So th- the first thing to know is that an SVM does only care about your support vectors, which means that if you increase the importance, either by upsampling or by increasing the loss in any of your examples, the SVM will not care about this just because this will not change the support vectors. Like this is kind of like adding more data points that due to the ones that you already have and SVM will not care about this. So, essentially if you do logistic regression in this case you will converge to the same solution. However, if you throw away data points, you will throw away some of your support vectors from the majority mm-hmm. group and this will decrease the norm of your classifier which will give you a stronger generalization. It's just a, yeah, it's this very counterintuitive problem where throwing away data points is a form of regularization. Jerry Gold just because you're trying to fit less things. Yeah, um, yeah. And you throw away things that you already know. It's implicitly reducing your capacity for in, in a form of regularization, but it's not reducing how much you care about the minority samples. So this is one essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very
2: interesting. I mean, if you think about it from like a human learning perspective as well, it feels a lot more like what people are doing. Like, I don't remember every base ever that exactly. I remember. Uh, more the weird ones, <laughs>
0: exactly. You remember a lot more the edge cases. However, if you have ten edge cases, you don't throw away of your childhood. It's almost like you keep enough of it to learn the concept, but you use them together. It's not just that you think about it more often and that's it. You know, like of the mm-hmm. same exact uh, memory and arrive to the same conclusion. It's kind of mm-hmm. like you still use this massive amount of data. Like basically, yeah, you you do something else that work worth it, but. It pains me to say this, but basically the conclusion to which we are arriving is that all our benchmarks kind of suck. The ones we have are too easy or just don't make sense. So I'm cautiously optimistic though. I've been speaking to a friend that has been doing quite a bit of work on self-driving car data. In particular, in this type of self-driving car data that is, so it's simulated, it's like this GTA-like environments, but it's an environment that are like game realistic. They're, they're still like, they're scared. and strong enough that People in the self-driving car community trust them. If something works in there, chances are that it will work to some extent, of course, in the real world. And they're seeing things similar to the problems that we want to solve. Like, for example, the model tends to either ignore motorbikes or just that basically it neglects minority samples.
2: This is one
0: way to put it. And that it very badly performs in tail cases. So at least we have a problem, you know. We have a problem that sort of resembles the things that we are thinking of. And it's uh, large scale enough that people would care about it if we solve it. So mm-hmm. creating benchmarks is a tedious process for which, mm-hmm. A, I don't have the expertise at all. Like I'm a very bad engineer and you need, luckily my friend is very good at this, but you need a group, like uh, what happened with ImageNet that says like, we're going to make a good benchmark. Mm-hmm. And that has not happened yet. Yeah.
1: Interesting, something you said earlier was this distinction between toy problems and problems actually that are harder and that people really care about in the real world. In some sense, ImageNet is kind of a toy problem.
0: Yeah. Uh, But not in
1: 2012, eh? uh, You're right. At the time,
0: it was not. At the time, it was even super criticized. It was reasonably hard for the, like like the CVPR community hated ImageNet. Just because mm. they were like, we cannot solve CIFAR, you know, or something small. Like, it's almost, they even thought of finishing it as mental masturbation because it was so hard. Apologies for the, the but That's basically, yeah, they were saying like, we cannot solve problems with 10 classes. And now you want to solve uh, a problem with 10,000 classes. This is stupid. And um, mm-hmm. because they didn't realize, no one did at the time, the importance of scale. For them, scale was almost a bad thing. I and mean, for an SVM that scales cubically with a number of data points, scale is a bad thing. And until you can solve the very simple problem with small amounts of data, you're not going to be able to solve the big thing. And translating networks will not be failing this way. You can only use them when you have reasonably large amounts of data.
1: So people have developed benchmarks. Is it the case generally that if you develop a good benchmark, people adopt it? Or is it the case that often, I feel like often people develop benchmarks. They're not the best, but they maybe are better or are different in some way, but Pointing in a direction where people don't want to solve that problem, and so no one tackles the benchmark, what makes a benchmark
0: take off? The moment where ImageNet took off was the moment when it was solved, to be honest. And there is a bit of back and forth. There's many things that make a good benchmark, but the most important one is that people will care about, if, if, about it if it's solved. Otherwise, I think ImageNet at the time failed on other ways. It wasn't a benchmark that people cared about because it was impossible. When Alex Krzyzewski, like, solved the ImageNet, it was a very wow moment. Then other things happened. Like, for example, then the classic, very classical computer vision said, oh, but this is object classification. Like, they're never going to solve detection. And three years pass and they solved detection. And it was a whole thing. There's always a back and forth, you know, of the non believers and the people that make them believe. The most important thing is that, to me, personally, is that if you solve the benchmark, people will care about. Otherwise, why are we even testing on it in the first place? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think this is the most important thing. Then there is a matter of, is the problem approachable at this time? And this is a very important discussion that you don't always know. Mm-hmm. Certainly for image people did not know if the problem was approachable at the time or not. In fact, most people mm-hmm. knew that it wasn't. And this is also important. Like if you come up with, there are such driving car data sets that this g d 100K that perhaps you can partition in very artificial ways to do out-of-instruction generalization, like, of course, I would love to go from rain and sunny to predict perfectly how cars are going to move in the snow, but this is unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Um, So there needs to be obviously a balance of hard enough so that people will care about it and easy enough so that it's approachable. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is why it's difficult to create good benchmarks, but I think the first one is really, really a requirement. And because you see in this paper from Stanford that there are a lot of, they're all kind of like somewhat silly tasks that you can solve all of them and no one in the respective communities will be like, oh wow, you solved yeah, you know, like, yeah, no one <laughs> like oh great, you you're pretty very well. Interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's a really good point. I really like that. A good benchmark must be hard enough that people care and easy enough and it's approachable and that people will work on it.
0: Yeah. Most of the time you've paid in one or another, but the time we're not finding anything that's like even somewhat in the needle. This is my opinion, eh? Maybe you talk to Parzilian and and his students and they disagree.
2: On that topic, what other controversial opinions do you feel like you have about machine learning research?
0: (laughs) Oh, I'm going to say a few things that perhaps people will be mad, but I don't know if they're controversial. I think there's too many papers of rephrasing X as Y. Too many of them. I don't need another paper that has this as an information-theoretic interpretation. If the information-theoretic interpretation is not giving me any new information, I don't want it. There's so many papers with little to zero significance. They're correct most of the time, but who cares? There's so many papers that you read through them. You're like, okay, I believe what they're saying, but did I learn anything? Not really. Hmm. There's so many papers that have like this taxonomy of like, oh, this paper talks about this problem, this paper talks out this problem. I don't know. It seems like there's very little new things. There's also, I think uh, this has slowed down because I stopped uh, in of what I'm seeing because I stopped reviewing gun papers, but before when I was reading gun papers, there's too many wrong papers. Like, shut out. Wrong. You know? Like, you get these submissions to your that get too good reviews and that I tend to destroy the paper just because they're saying theorems that do not make sense, you know? Like, do not write a theorem unless it's a real theorem. Like, Mm -hmm. unless you are reading, like, actually defining correctly what you're saying. Use the right words. And by the right words, I mean, like, say, we conjecture, blah, 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 that's fine, but We show theoretically that blah, blah, blah. I think many people try to do theory because they think that it adds value to a paper when most of the time, either it has nothing to do with the story or it's incorrect or it's just not reflecting the behavior that they're claiming in the text. And it's a lot of work to reviewers to actually discern this. For example, uh, there's a lot of, especially when I was reviewing a lot of gun papers, especially because everyone gave me a theoretical ones, which I was super annoyed at at some point. There were so many papers that were talking about guns and had these bounds that extended, depend exponentially on the dimension of the problem. And, oh, yeah, I wanna, I'm talking about guns to generate images with a medium pixels, and then I have a bound that says that I will need two to the medium samples. It makes no sense. I'm tired of people believing that theory adds to a paper. Yes. Yeah. Most of the time, it either derails the message that you were trying to tell, or it's wrong, or it has nothing to do with the uh, theory. And the other thing that I'm super tired of is seeing papers that have an introduction about A, an experiment about B, and theory about C. <laughs> Just awful. <Ooh>. <laughs> Why? <laughs> to your first point about information
3: theoretic
1: measures
0: or like Oh, ah. I, I have a very controversial opinion on this topic. Information theory for machine learning is mostly useless.
3: Dang, that's a very interesting theory. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, what?
0: Here's the thing, in its current form, and let me elaborate on this. I do think that it can be fixed, though, and I would be totally fine spending five years of my life to do that. So here's the thing. Let's take the information bottleneck paper, for example. The information bottleneck paper has a great idea, which is that compression is likely to help generalization. However, all this theory and all of these information theoretic tools that they use, like, for example, entropy, really makes sense only in discrete spaces. Continuous entropy does not make sense in most cases. It does yeah. not. I'll give you an example. Imagine you have a Gaussian distribution with uh, in one dimension is completely collapsed. So it's still a Gaussian distribution just d minus one dimensional. Or like, what's the continuous entropy of this distribution?
1: Infinite.
0: It's negative infinity. Negative
1: infinity, you're
0: right. It's negative. <laughs> so continuous entropy does not have to be positive. And in particular even though, and imagine the image net, the distribution of image net, if there is such a thing, like uh, the distribution of images or your net data set or something like hyper complex, but that is likely constrained to a low dimensional manifold, you know, like images aren't believed to be. Again, the entropy of this negative infinity, just because it's constrained to a low dimensional manifold, even though it can be as complex as you want, it can have as much uncertainty as you want. If it's low dimensional, the entropy will be negative infinity. So it will have as much entropy as a delta. like. It just does not make sense to measure most of the things that people want to measure. It's just flat out wrong when you have geometry. Like, mm. And you can look at this really in the original paper from Shannon, which by the way is amazing. And you look at all these things that have to do with real information transmission and all of these things. And, uh, and how he derives discrete entropy from these fundamental principles and everything. And then there's a chapter which he says, oh, you can do the same thing, but with an integral. Does not satisfy most of the properties that I cared about, but nothing do it. Uh, Like it's just out of the blue, you know? Uh (laughs) Like it's not motivated, it doesn't have the same purpose. It's just not the right thing to measure uncertainty or diversity when you have uh, either low dimensional or in general continuous distributions, because it does not take into account geometry very well. Mm -hmm. There are much better tools. There's these things that are called metric entropy, covering numbers, blah, blah, blah. blah. They all scale very poorly to high-dimensional space. And this is another story. I think that the analogy, how the Wasserstein distance fixes a lot of problems that KL divergences have when geometry is involved, mm-hmm. in the sense that the Wasserstein distance between two distributions that are like lines, if you have lines that are far apart, the Wasserstein distance will uh, be bigger than they're very close, while the KL divergences will be infinite in It'll both Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, there's no such thing for as as Vaselfine is to KL, there's no such thing for entropy. And uh, oh, yeah.
1: analogy.
0: And we really need that because we think of that intuitively, but mm. we're using the wrong tools right now. Yeah.
3: Mm. Interesting.
0: Yeah. This is a controversial opinion, you asked for. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: interesting.
1: <laughs> Do you feel like there's anyone working,
0: anything close to? Yes, the, yes, yes. The so, so, so there is one particular paper that I think is great. I don't think it does the job. I think it's not the full story by a long shot and we can go more into it in later, but there's a paper that's called the uh, Geometrically Aligned Information Theory or something like that. It's by um, uh, Simon Lacoste-Julien's, Montreal. Uh, let me, it's called GATE.
1: Eight.
0: So this paper. It's not like Wasserstein is to, so if you have a uh, Wasserstein KN, this is not like, Bas- like uh, the equivalence for entropy, but do you know about the maximum mean discrepancy? Very chance. So maximum mean know. discrepancy is a distance between probability distributions that it's more similar to Wasserstein, but it's based on kernels. And it has a few properties that are very nice that Wasserstein has that KLS don't, like this thing about the lines move together and all this, it, it has it. But it has a bunch of other problems that I'm not going to go into detail, but Leon actually, I'm the second author in a paper that Leon wrote, really, I shouldn't have taken much credit on it, that specifies a lot of these things into a lot of detail of why these, how these things are different from Wasserstein and why for machine learning they're not so good. But it has the analog for entropy, for MMD. So that I think is half the story. But I think the interesting part is going to be the other half.
1: What's the half that's missing?
0: The half that's missing is taking out the kernels and working in high-dimensional spaces with neural networks, basically. And the important part where MMD fails is that Mm -hmm. because it's working on kernels, it's very non-parametric. For example, uh, you know kernel density estimation, like this unsupervised uh, method that basically says, imagine I have a lot of data points, I put a Gaussian around a data point, and then I average all those Gaussians. This is my density estimation. This will converge exponentially slowly for uh, as the dimension increases. Just because imagine you have a hypercube in 2 to the d, then all your data points will be far away because you're never going to get something that's really like uh, alt- where the dimensions kind of align. Basically, the story is that it's missing the neural network, kind of. Uh, if you look at it, MMD and all of these things, they're terrible generative models. They have all the properties that Wasserstein has and stuff, but they're missing like the adversarial network part of it, let's say they're missing the replacement of a kernel by a neural network in a way that makes sense. Mm. Uh, The thing that breaks kind of the curse of dimensionality and why neural networks work in high-dimensional spaces and kernel methods just kind of suck. So it's missing that part. I think more generally, it's also missing... Well, it has a bit of an information... Actually, I think they did a great job in the sense of like coming up with the analogs for data processing inequalities and things like this. But I would like to see, like, a full information theory based on things that are more like parametric Wasserstein distances. And another thing that's missing, coming back to the original point, is good benchmarks for it. Because you should only use uncertainty or diversity or all of these things that entropy-like things are used for only when you have a downstream task. I think information bottleneck is a great one, and I think it's a type that, like, an an idea that could benefit from a lot of these uh, lines of thinking. Hmm. But there are many others. People have been using entropy in machine learning for many, many, many decades, especially in the Bayesian community and all of this. And this is all wrong. But, yeah, it would be nice to have benchmarks. Where you plug your uncertainty measure or you apply your replacement for entropy and it gives you a number. And the higher that number, the better. -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What do you mean information
3: bottleneck
1: could benefit from the ones that
0: Information bottleneck is this idea about trying to understand the neural networks of saying that neural networks find the most compressed representation that allows you to predict the target. So Neural networks find the most complex. compressed. Compressed. So imagine you have images. From the images, you create a very tiny representation. And then from that representation, you predict the level. From that representation, you ask two things. You ask that you can predict the level very well. And you ask that it's compressed as much as you can. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And They do two things in this information bottleneck paper. They come with this half-baked theory that if these two things are satisfied, then you will get good generalization. And they come up with very half-baked experiments. The theory part is correct but meaningless, like correct but vacuous, let's say. (laughs) And the experiments, I think, just don't make much sense. They have these experiments where they show that neural networks actually satisfy these two things. And I think... Ideally, this is what you would have for this new measure of entropy, right? You would have something like, like you would have the good generalization bounds that hopefully will be non vacuous for the first time in machine learning. And you would show that neural networks are actually compressing with this kind of metric of compression. Because compression of discrete things makes a lot of sense with entropy, but continuous compression in a geometric sense makes no sense with entropy. Mm-hmm. And this is what neural networks are doing. You're
2: You went through some papers, like, I don't want to see any more papers like this. What are some recent works that you were very excited about? Oh, really interesting.
0: My favorite paper in the last two years is this paper by, I want to say his name properly, but I think it's Baishnav Nagarajan called, I know he drives here. It's uh, it's always near me at all (laughs) times. Understanding the failure modes of auto distribution generalization. Yeah, Uh Baishnav Nagarajan. The only thing that I have to complain about this paper is that it says too many things. Like, it should be three separate papers on this. Yes. Yeah, basically it describes how spurious correlations can arise. Let me start with a bit of history of what we were thinking about spurious correlations. The way we came up to spurious correlations was with the cow on the beach problem, where for those who are not familiar with it, it's this thing that there was this service developed by Clarify, this startup that uh, basically predicted objects in Pictures, you give it a picture and it tells you what objects there. And if you put a picture of a cow on a beach, it says that there is no cow. (laughs) And this is is an example by Pietro Perona from Caltech that has been a driver in the community for many reasons, but particularly because people have observed this kind of behavior in practice, like with the moon, and it's a very similar story. And it's an interesting motivated example. And then well, the toy version that we that we and many, many people in the causality community were thinking of is when you have a cause, the target, and an effect. And when you intervene or change the cause, then the target changes accordingly. So the cause is very, it's reliable to predict the target. But if you change the effect, then the target will not change because it's a consequence. So basically you want to keep the cause. Now, the interesting thing is that... What's a
1: concrete example of a cause, a target, and effect? Just let me imagine
0: it. It depends on how concrete you want it. But basically, let me say, you have three symptoms and the symptom in the middle is what the one that's going to kill the person. Like, for example, you have radiation, you have cancer and you have high blood pressure or something like this. Mm-hmm. And you want to predict if the person is going to have cancer or not. So, but how and you have information at the, let's say, the radiation or like some markers for radiation and you have the high blood pressure one. Now, mm-hmm. and it's important in this case to know the cause also because it's the one that you're going to treat. But, If you want to know which one of the two, both of them are very well correlated with the the cancer, no? But the important thing in here is that in this kind of examples, a lot of times, if you just train like a linear regression or or a logistic classification or something like this, a lot of times, not always, and this is what I want to go more into detail, it will use both things. Like it will use whether the person has radiation or whether the person has high blood pressure. In this setup, it's very easy to understand why it uses both. It's because both of them are useful, no? No, like, it's not a one-to-one mapping of radiation to cancer. So, if the person has both radiation and high blood pressure, then uh, both of them are useful features to predict the cancer. However, you only want to use the radiation one because there may be many, many other factors for high blood pressure. And in particular, maybe the person has, a like, I don't want to medicate high blood pressure with cancer medicine, you know? I want to medicate Mm -hmm. if I see the cause and not the effect. Especially, and this matters, again, out of distribution only, for example, like if you just have a pool of patients and a patient comes with both markers, then this is a very strong sign, more than if it just has one. But if this person has high blood pressure medication, which it would be kind of like your test out of distribution case, then this causal knowledge is important because Mm -hmm. you know that you don't want to use this to, to give cancer medication. So in here, basically the TLDR of this entire story is that in the causal picture, which is important sometimes, the effect is useful. The high blood pressure thing is useful when predicting in distribution. It's going to hurt you out of distribution, but it's useful in distribution. Mm -hmm. This is not necessarily the case in the the cow on the beach example. Because in the cow on the beach example, if I have the cow, I don't need the background.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: And this is important in the sense that if I have uh, infinite data, let's say, I will forget about the background. Like mm-hmm. this becomes less of a problem when I have more data. However, the other situation, in the cause and effect one, this does not become less of a problem if I have more data. Because if I have mm-hmm. more data from unmedicated patients, all of these statistics will still remain. What I'm saying is that the cause and effect picture is different than the dose distribution picture. When... So cow on the beach, different than cancel. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> and it's something very fundamental that will lead to different algorithms. And mm-hmm. when we were doing binary minimization, we were thinking at cost and effect. And then we started realizing this, little by little there were disagreements. In particular, the fact that the more data you have for the cow on the beach, the better you will do. And this is something mm-hmm. that is in practice. You know, GPT-3 still works bet- better than GPT-2, uh, mm-hmm. even for out-of-distribution tasks and things like this. Uh, mm-hmm. Perhaps it... You shouldn't use it to treat cancer, but for certain kinds of auto problems, it's useful. Or let's say it performs at least better than scale. And this paper by Bashnap says in a very concrete mathematical way why it happens. Like, if the effect is not useful per se, if the background is not more useful than the cow, why is it using okay. the background?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And this is something that picture people have talked about before, even we did, but kind of informally, that basically it picks the background because it's easier. And easier it means in the sense of low capacity, let's say. Like, <clears throat> it's much easier from a capacity point of view to capture something local, like the texture of a grass or the texture of a beach than the global shape of an animal. So now it doesn't become a matter of usefulness in terms of correlations. It becomes a matter of capacity and implicit regularization. So what I'm saying is that for these two problems of causality and cow on the beach, even though both are as correlations problems, the models pick them up because of very different reasons. In one, it's because of mm-hmm. genuine usefulness in distribution performance. And in the other one, it's because of an implicit regularization behavior. And mm-hmm. this paper lays it out super, super well. It says that there's two forms of implicit regularization. One is done by this implicit regularization behavior of uh, SGD of, uh, that happens of like this thing that I was telling you about before that. If you just train with no regularization in a problem that where you can get zero training error, then you get to the maximum margin solution. In regression, you come up with the minimum norm one, which basically is... In- this is one source of uh, this police correlation issue. And the other source is basically early stopping. It's the fact that since you don't train to infinity, the gradients that you see in the beginning matter a lot from... If you have a lot more gradients from majority group,
3: then mm.
0: these are the ones that you will look at more and if you do early stopping... The minority ones are not going to have enough influence to, to kind of counteract this. And you just had this couple of toy tasks where this analysis is done super, super, super well. And it's just one of these papers that you read, and then you read it 10 times more. Mm-hmm. And uh, you learn so much from reading, mm-hmm. like so, so much. And yeah, it's a paper that I would have loved to have written. Just I'm not smart yeah. enough. He has another paper which won a very cool uh, award in NIPs of Outstanding New Directions in Machine Learning or something like that. Uh, it's not this one. It's another one. Completely different topic that says uh, something like Uniform Convergence May be Unable to Explain Generalization in Deep Learning and basically says that everything that people have been doing learning theory to explain neural nets is bullshit. Um, yeah. yeah. So, If you are looking for another person to intervene in your podcast, I think is a good candidate.
1: That's super interesting.
0: Yeah. So... I like these kind of papers that go from intuition to really solid toy tasks and really solid understanding of how this happens. And yeah, that papers that you read and you start coming up with new ideas, not papers that they come up with the, the best algorithm in the world that only gets 0.5% in modern image net. And it's almost like there's papers that you leave with no new ideas and you have to do all the work to come up with counterexamples of why this would fail and all of these things and like... Where did they go wrong? And there's these papers that do a few things really well and they start giving you new ideas. Mm -hmm. And there's also many papers like from Shiori Sagawa. She's a Pearson student with Liang. Everything that she writes is amazing as well. Mm -hmm. Very similar style of papers, but really looking at more of a deep learning-based approach and more Mm algorithm-based. Yeah. I think everything that these two people write is in general gold. Mm -hmm.
3: What's
1: your favorite paper from Shiori?
0: Oof, there's so many. I think there's one that I really like, which basically is the one that says this, throwing away most of your data point analogy. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, it's something like overparameterization may exacerbate full correlations in deep learning or something like this. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. An investigation of why
0: overparameterization exacerbates variance correlation. Yeah, this one. But the, also, the, the latest one that she has is very good, this just trained twice data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Yes.
1: What did you like about it?
0: Well, already this under sampling thing, I think was something that I would have never come up with by myself and uh, that I think was, it's a single paragraph almost. You know, it's not really well done. I would say this part of the paper, the rest is amazingly well done. It's just, again, something that you, like this idea of under, like throwing away most of your data set, and how is it different from like this in the presence of implicit regularization and showing that this actually holds with deep neural networks in these benchmarks and stuff, it's not just a linear experiment. They show that this behavior that they think of in, in the examples actually holds yeah, at scale all around a solid paper, like good ideas, good experiments to show that what they're saying is not crap. The only thing that I would say is that she should drive put uh, error bars in her papers. This drive me nuts. <laughs> Uh, Aside okay. from that, uh, yeah, ten out of ten.
1: Interesting. Huh. What do you feel like are some underrated papers or
0: overlooked papers or approaches or techniques? Mm. Underrated, I would say I think anomaly detection is an underrated field in machine learning. Huh. I think everyone in the industry is with 10 times a day, and everyone in the industry is craving for more things, and no one hmm. in machine learning like York, et etc. cares. <laughs> Partially because of a lack of good benchmarks, but also Mm -hmm. because of a lack of good evaluation metrics for this. I think it's going to become more and more and more important. Especially the thing that everyone is trying to solve now is exploration. Exploration is just uncertainty estimation of your Q function in the end. So I think anomaly detection, uncertainty estimation, these kinds of things, I mean, are hugely, hugely important in practice. And machine learning people just don't touch them because it's easier to do classification.
1: Yeah, it's
0: interesting It is a benchmark. Sure. Yeah, benchmarks, and not just benchmarks, in this case, it's also a matter of how do you quantify when a model performs well? It's not an easy, an easy thing. Like it's, mm-hmm. I think it's even worse than in unsupervised learning. Because in unsupervised learning, at least people had likelihood and we were all coming up with this weird the things, but at the very least, you could always have human evaluations to say how pretty the faces look when mm-hmm. you have the generative models, but in this, it's much harder, I think. So it's not just a lack of maintenance; it's a lack of somewhat objective quantifiable measures. Uh, interesting. Yeah. But nonetheless, it's arguably the most important problem in practice that I find. Whenever I talk to people in startups and stuff, one of the main things is that, especially people in factories and stuff like that, uh, they want to know when things are falling apart.
1: Yeah. They want to know when the machine is uncertain. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and there's two elements of it. One is the uncertainty in prediction when the classifier is uncertain, but also just unsupervised. You have a bunch of data points you want to say when something looks weird. Uh, Mm
3: Like
0: raise an alarm so a human can take a look at it. Yeah, I think this is very underrated for good reasons. I'm not blaming them. It's hard to do research when you cannot convince anyone that what you're saying is working. And I don't have any good ideas on how to solve this either. Coming up with good benchmarks is one thing. Coming up with good... uh, metrics to like quantify this also because all the anomaly detection problems are different as well. This is sort of similar to out of distribution, you know, in the sense of like there's adversarial attacks are out of distribution problems, but they're very different from the cow on the beach, which is different from causality. Like there's this plethora of out of distribution problems that are different that obviously will require different types of benchmark, different types of algorithms, etc. But out of distribution, it's even worse because you don't even have like this, at least in all the problems that I just told you about, you can measure out-of-distribution prediction accuracy, something like this. In case you don't even have, it. you just have out-of-distribution.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> um, so yeah, that quite sucks. There is some research, especially for the cases where you have like classifiers and stuff. Like for example, there's this paper that David and my friend Ismael came up with, which is they have this image not paper where they basically have a chunk of image net and they have another chunk of image net. And uh, a chunk of image net is on what they train. Like this is where classes come from and everything. And then you have all these neighbors that are essentially anomalies and the classifier needs to be able to say, I'm not uncertain or uh, <laughs> just say that this is an anomaly and stuff. So in the end, you can at least quantify the false positive and true positives of this kind mm-hmm. of thing. There are things to do, but at least at the moment, there's no good benchmarks for anomaly detection and it's kind of a shame. <laughs> I do think that. Nonetheless, perhaps the benchmarks will come from our more than anything, just because it's becoming more and more popular. Theory-wise, it's been always popular, but it's practically wise. In the end, all these intrinsic rewards vary on some notion of uncertainty on your environment, and they are becoming kind of implicit ways of evaluating this. And overrated, GPT-3, I think it's massively overrated.
3: That's That's
0: interesting. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. it's way (laughs) out of proportion, Way out of proportion. We really agree with this. Do you think, <laughs> yeah? I think the performance out of the zero-shot generalization, it still sucks. If you compare it to everything, to anything more directed, let's say. I think the premise of what they're trying to do is the premise of having task agnostic models, I think it's great. Like this idea uh-huh. that in the end, we will converge to one language model for all. This, I totally agree with. I think <laughs> scale is not the answer. I think scale is a part of the answer, but I think it's just, yeah, not the whole story. And uh, it pains me to see uh, so much money being thrown out to, and so much energy and so much uh, stuff to just uh, this line of research. But I also acknowledge that it's necessary to have people that push on this direction to know its limits. Uh, You cannot just have people that think at small scales. Like, you need people that this is their full time job doing research that already has been done at Ultra scales I think it's
1: necessary. Yeah. Understanding scaling rules. How about techniques that you feel are underrated or that you feel like you've gotten a lot of mileage out of, but you know people don't really think about it?
0: I'm going to say something that I would have never thought of two years ago. I think SVMs are underrated. <laughs> it's no. hilarious. So n- not kernel ones, just linear SVMs. And understanding implicit regularization in terms of one, because a lot of times you have a toy task and it's so simple to understand what an SVM would do. And you can run it in one second, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. not kernelized. I think kernels are the trick of the devil. They're a way to fool yourself into thinking that you're going to solve the course of dimensionality when really you're doing nothing. You're just interpolating hand dimensions. But linear SVMs, I think they're a useful thinking tool more than people give them credit for Because especially when I talk about SVMs, people tell me, oh, but what happens if I do logistic regression? And then I have to explain again that logistic regression when zero training error cases is an SVM, you know? This is the whole reason why I'm thinking about them. But yeah, it's an underrated thinking tool. Linear SVMs.
1: Really interesting. Josh did his math. Sorry,
2: I think. Oh, I mean, yeah, I used them a long time ago, but I agree. They're a very useful tool for understanding what is happening and a practical tool, although you're just yeah. yeah and you want to look at them and see what's going on. Great, go for it. Yeah, yeah
1: our last quote unquote AI startup, we just used FBMs for a really long time.
2: It they totally fine. Yeah. And this so fast. So, so fast.
3: fast.
2: So great. I had a sort of related question, which is from working on more practical or applied stuff with startups. And I think you said one of the things that came from that is like, oh, the anomaly exception is really important. Are there any other lessons you learned or techniques you took away from there as you kind of worked on more practical things? Especially doing research in the I guess th-
0: this is going to be very obvious, but people will only apply things that are extremely simple and that work, yeah. and I, work almost right out of the box. But you cannot expect people in industry to do fancy graduate student descent of hyperparameters. And I guess the other thing is that you need to provide extremely good default hyperparameters. You don't need to provide the best hyperparameters. You need to be yeah. conservative, put a reasonably small learning rate, you know, things like this, like making sure that the first thing that they try that's okay, you know?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And yeah, the simplicity thing is crucial. Anything more complicated than a couple of lines of code will not be used. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Do you feel like that maybe has an impact with GANs? Like I'm not sure how many people in the real world use GANs. Maybe because they've been a little bit complicated for a while, but maybe they've gotten simpler
0: now and some of sure. I think GANs were mostly used on like highly specialized things that had to do with art or rendering or things like this. And yeah, for sure, I think be part of it was the fact that they were not easy to train. And um, I think that once they started getting easier to train, I started seeing more of this. I got this feeling, at least from talking to people, they have to be simple and they kind of have to work right out of the road. Otherwise, they do look for something else. But yeah, yeah, for sure. I think this is one of the recent things that hindered the guns. As well, another thing that I would say is that it's not super, super common to see applications of unsupervised learning in general or genetic modeling in general. It depends on the problem, of course, but I mean, if you compare it, like most of the time when I talk to a startup, they want to predict something. Yeah, kind of it. And related to GAN, yeah, I think this was for sure uh, something that hindered their usage for a while and then they kind of started doing very well. And this is why also things like that maybe perform extremely well, but like these uh, variational slows and things like this, I've never seen them applied in practice just because Mm -hmm. Just reading the papers is complicated.
3: It's
0: true.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Nobody use. To... I wonder what will sort of happen as we go into the future, where like these things just get more and more complicated and more and more difficult to use. They build on extra layers in the research. But sometimes people find like really simplifying things. I think you know, you said this is sort of obvious, but I don't know if this is entirely obvious to everyone in research. How simple it needs to be for it to be worth applying. Oh,
0: like yeah. <laughs> I guess this is something that that I really. Yeah, I should have stressed more. When I mean simple, like I'm really saying a few lines of code, it has to be close to like import algorithm, you know, yeah. like
3: mm-hmm.
0: otherwise there's no way like people would look for something simpler, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's true. Is it of simple?
0: Yeah, unless it's on super specialized things. And there's obviously a case for either like the things that we were doing in video compression. Some of them were really complicated because. It was 20 experts that were doing all of the quality of YouTube. So then they could afford to spend a bit more time thinking about something. But right. a lot of times, especially in startups where you have 20 people working for an entire product and this is going to be one part of it, and they're not experts. They just need to work right off the bat or, because they don't have the expertise a lot of times to like start tuning hyperparameters or do re- like the research part of this that involves like getting something to work. It has to be essentially right of the box. Mm-hmm. And this is why the WGAN-GP thing was successful because I think Ishan was very careful in how people put the whole helper parameters. This is something that mm-hmm. I've done this quite a couple of times that like I ground his code out of the box on a new image dataset and it worked. I think this was valuable <coughs> for people.
2: Yeah. I actually remember using it. Oh, really? and- it worked? Yeah. Yeah, it worked. It worked great. Oh, awesome. Yeah. No.
3: That's yeah. so surprising.
2: <laughs> I think it's one of the first neural networks I ever trained even. Oh, wow. And yeah. Yeah.
0: I have another example of this, Adam. Adam, maybe mm. not the best algorithm in the world. Like maybe if you really tune SGD, it will perform better. But Adam works right off the box on everything. essentially everything, even weird stuff. And this is what people use it. Who wants to spend 10 days doing like your learning rate decay or your... Cosine, learning schedule, and all of these things. You want to focus on other parts of the project. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a researcher. Can you imagine as a practitioner? No chance. Yeah.
1: No, totally. That's interesting. What do you feel like was an opinion that you once
0: held strongly, but now you don't agree with anymore? I wasn't a huge fan of Adam and these kind of things. Like, if you look at the theory on the paper, it's, Kind of pretty sad, like it's almost to the point where anyone that knows how without optimization can tell that the result is very suboptimal. It's like, it's not even the right thing to talk about. It was clearly done by people that didn't know much about optimization. and that's fine. And now I think I changed my mind very strongly about it in the sense that I, this that I, I was just you about, I couldn't care less. Like the algorithm is great. It works. Who cares about whether it some regret bound or something like this? Um, and I guess what I'm saying is like I become much more okay with papers having like a very cool contribution, but I no longer expect neither mine nor other papers to be perfect. I acknowledge that a paper can have a massive contribution, a massive impact, and not even be fully correct on a lot of things. Like, <laughs> but what I'm still very obnoxious about is that if you write Theorem, you really have to have a theorem and a proof because this, I'm still very annoyed. But this paper was correct. It was just, yeah, a bit sad. That makes sense. Oh, I have one. I used to thought that policy learning was like a kind of like policy gradient and in general, learning policies directly without the value function was totally useless. Uh, (laughs) When I learned the RL, there was no function approximation. And the way that people did policy learning was with meta So it was essentially looking at the policy space, which is this exponentially large space. It was like traveling salesman problem type of behavior. And learning value functions was done by dynamic programming, which was the way to solve these problems in very, very fast times. And I didn't realize that until 2016, maybe, that when you have function approximation, it's the learning algorithm is a bit different, but the parametrization is the same. In one, you have a Q function, which is a neural network, and in the end, you're just taking the maximum. In the other one, you're sampling according to softmax. So it's basically the same thing. Like, uh, And uh, therefore, the space that you're learning on is very, very similar. And it will have similar properties, especially regarding SGD and all of these things. This is something that I changed like 180 on. Just because mm-hmm. I had a background that led me to believe that it's not that anyone told me this. This is the conclusion that I came up with myself that was wrong, that policy learning was just a waste of time, just because I had always associated it with travel and problems, you know? Interesting.
1: What do you think of all the best researchers that you've worked with? What are some common threads that you feel make them effective?
0: Oof, uh,
1: or are there no common threads? It's very
0: different. There are, for sure. But it's very different. Uh, I would like to separate the uh, best researchers that I worked with that have 30 years of experience with the ones I have two because they're completely different people and completely different set of skills. The senior people that, I mean, for sure, I would say Leon, without a doubt, is the smartest person I've ever worked. Like, Leon has a vision that is extremely good at the things that are going to be important in the next 10 years. And the things that are and the next thing. I think for senior people, the common thread is just the vision of the thing that is going to be important. And another thing is that in general, extremely good writers, they really care about writing good papers and they really Mm -hmm. care about what's the central message that you're trying to transmit. Another thing that Leon has, which I think is particularly great, is that his technical level is extremely good. And he still does technical work despite having all this experience. I think Mm that's extremely wonderful. For junior people. They're not afraid, they want to understand, and they're extremely good
3: engineers.
0: (laughs) And in particular, I think there is a common thread of what is important. Because you can be an extremely good engineer, you can be not afraid of anything and so forth, but if you're working on a problem that no one is going to care about, then probably I won't work with them. When you're doing research, every day there is a possibility of working on two or three different things. And every day you make a choice on what to work on. And... Most of the time, the right choice is the important, like the, the one that the community as a whole will care more about. Just because mm-hmm. the community as a whole, a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times tends to reflect what is going to be applicable or what's going to be important in practice. And when there is a disagreement, in general, these people tend to prefer what people are going to use rather than what they think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all of these people, after a certain point, after they get one or two papers out, they all care about what people are going to use rather than what's going to get published. None of these people care about the number of papers that they write in the end. They all care about, do I have something that people are going to use? And in particular, this is why all these people care a lot about the writing as well, because if you don't write a, a paper that's easy to understand, no one will use your method. So your paper has to be extremely clear. It has to be simple. The code has to be simple and easy to use. I, I guess the real common thread is a desire for people to use whatever they're doing. That's interesting.
1: That's really interesting. Do mm-hmm. you have any strong intuitions or theories about important directions that you want to investigate? We talked a little about. Yeah, the...
0: there's a few. I mean, if you made me pick one thing to work on right now, well, I guess it depends. Am I working on this by myself or am I working on this with people that I can choose? If I can choose the people, I will be working on auto situation generalization. If I'm just working on it by myself, I would work on this geometric information theory type of thing. Hmm. Because I think out of this solution, since it's a problem that requires creation of new benchmarks, I, know, I think this is a multiple person project. To the point where I don't even know if the group that I am right now is, I think at some point we're going to have to deal with creating benchmarks and this is going to be kind of a larger scale thing that, but not, luckily, you know, in six months I will be in deep mind done. Uh, <laughs> this is a good environment to create this. But I mean, it's also something that will take time. I don't even know if I want to be the director of this. I don't know if that's a job that I would enjoy. Probably. But in this geometric information thing, I think I would also enjoy doing a lot of these things. But this is also a task that requires benchmarks because otherwise, again, if you create with a cool measure of information or uncertainty or diversity or whatever, shh, but what are you going to use it for? Mm-hmm. Just,
1: uh, when you go to mind, is the plan to work on out-of-distribution generalization with this benchmark creation or is that...
0: No, probably <laughs> I think I'm going to focus on two things and I'll see what happens. So the work that I'm going to work in is the work that does right now is the best work in deep mind to do exploration, And in particular exploration is a problem that I love for many reasons, just because it's arguably one of the things that to me shows the most kind of this intelligent behavior that I want to create. Like this idea of, I have a problem that I don't know how to solve. How do I solve it? It's something that is so like, how do I learn to play a piano? You know, how do I learn to drive? It's the question of how do I learn, essentially, but starting from scratch, starting by like, I have to decide what to try, you know? And this is not reinforcement learning, I think, in the sense that this is not a... Right, it's not like you're getting reward on the time, and reinforcement learning traditionally has been a lot about this exploration-exploitation dilemma. I want to just focus on the exploration part. I remember looking at this video that was amazing of a little girl, I think six years old or so, learning to climb a horse, learning to, to get on top of a horse. And then first she goes up the back, she realizes that she cannot go. Then she puts one leg up in a weird position and she falls, and it's a little you no, know, so it's fine. Uh, and she kind of goes trying five or six different things and then she gets on the horse, you know? This is the kind of behavior that I would love to. And it's so complicated. Can you imagine, like, input that this girl is having is from that very low level, like all this like, uh, from touch and from seeing this horse and all of this like, going from that to this idea of, I'm going to put my leg in here and then I'm going to, yeah. because this is going to give me support to then put my hand in here like, yeah, it's crazy.
1: Yeah. Uh, There's this really interesting infant psychology literature from a group, Alison Gopnik at Berkeley, okay. and she basically has this theory that Young children, they are testing hypotheses the same way t- scientists do, and that's what the exploration process is. Oh, I yeah. know! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't. Okay, you know this. And so they have a whole bunch of experiments. I show them trying all these different configurations. It reminds me of what you're saying about the girl. Yeah,
0: models. yeah. This is essentially the same thing, but I want to study more of this kind of thing when your actual space is perhaps somewhat delimited, but when your input is perceptual, essentially, mm-hmm. and then this becomes a whole story of. What is the information that you just have to throw away? What is the space that you explore? Because, you know, in a lot of these experiments, you're kind of like having, like, you have a few actions to try and then each action has its own outcome. But in here, it's almost like you take an action and then you land in a different state, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have this mental map that you're exploring that filters out most of the things that you don't care about. And, yeah, I don't know, all of these are super interesting problems and and they're extremely related to both uncertainty estimation and, and anomaly detection and by extension, like geometric notions of uncertainty, just because a lot of times where uh, exploration a lot of, it can be essentially seen as uh, taking actions that reduce your uncertainty about how to get there or how to get the reward. Well.
3: Uh, and and this, is, this
0: is not me saying this. Naturally, if you look at the tabular cases and stuff there, all of them are bounding in different ways, uncertainty estimates of your Q function, like of your D function, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. like expected long-term reward. And it's a problem that's in... Extremely related to uncertainty estimation. And it's a problem that when you consider it with function approximation and perceptual inputs, obviously extremely related to out-of-distribution because it's not that you want to visit places that you've never been in necessarily, it's that you want to visit places where you are not confident that your predictions are going to be correct. And your predictions are going to be correct, not necessarily when... You don't have seen them enough because I maybe haven't seen this image before, but my neural network generalizes to it. It's more of, I'm going to be wrong when I'm more out of distribution. So it's kind of like, I think quantifications of out of distribution and all these things could be beneficial. Mm-hmm. So it's mixing all of the things that I'm interested in and the playing with agents and games and things like that, which I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So I'm excited That's about great. it. Yeah.
1: I yeah. want to know who
0: you are. The only sad thing is that I realized that I'm going to have to be working on JAX instead of PyTorch. So if this was two years ago, it would be TensorFlow, which would be death penalty. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I started to learn JAX recently and yeah, it's. I thought it was going to be that you could just replace NumPy with JAX and it would work. And it turns out it's not like that at all. I think that was the initial goal and they changed like 200 things in the middle. Oh, yeah. God. It's okay. It's not the end of the world.
1: Thanks for listening to the Generally Intelligent Podcast. If you like this, please consider giving us a rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at Kenjun K A N J U N, and our lab is at Gen Intelligent. Until next time.